Hi everyone. This is Criterion Channel Surfing and I'm your host, Josh Hornbeck. Just a quick note before we begin today's show. Apologies again for getting these November episodes out so late in the month. An unexpected trip to the emergency room with a severely dislocated knee delayed the editing of this slate of episodes. So the episode you're about to hear today is more lightly edited than usual. You'll hear all of our ums and uhs, our stammers and repetitions. I am still really excited about all of the episodes I'm putting together from my November recording sessions. I have some great guests, and the conversations were really wonderful. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed speaking with Richard, Michael, and Matt. Thanks for listening, everyone. And now, here's the show. You're listening to Criterion Channel Surfing, a podcast dedicated to the films of the Criterion Collection streaming video service, The Criterion Channel. Richard Doyle, frequent guest on the Criterion Reflections podcast, joins me today to talk about political cinema, films about politics and social issues that are only available on the Criterion channel. But first, I'll also check in with Matt Gasteyer for a conversation on the ways the Criterion Collection has been using their streaming service to share the work of underrepresented filmmakers. Stay with us as we start surfing the Criterion channel. If you enjoy Criterion Channel Surfing, check out videos by Daisuke Beppu. In this series of warm and inviting videos, Daisuke Beppu shares his thoughts and reflections on the Criterion Collection, home media, and the films he loves. Find his videos on YouTube and search for Daisuke Beppu. Criterion Cast podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com. I'm here with our good friend Matt Gasteyer of The Complete Podcast, now entering its fourth season, this time exploring the films of Satoshi Kon. Matt, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Wow, fourth fourth season. I know. This is crazy. And uh, before we dive into uh, our, our conversation, I just wanted to, to check in with you. It's been a few months since uh, we've talked on the show, and uh, you have finished your journey through Kijlovsky, and you are launching into a look at a new filmmaker. And uh, I just would love to uh, talk with you a little bit about what led you to exploring the films of Satoshi Kon and how that journey has been so far. Sure. Yeah. I mean, he's one of my favorite filmmakers and my co-host Travis has delved into his work a little bit as well. And we're always looking for a long season and then a short season is kind of mm -hmm. going to be our pattern. And unfortunately, this is, uh, this is going to be a short season. Um, mm -hmm. He passed away very young um, from cancer. And so he only has uh, four movies and a TV series to his name. And uh, it's it's a pretty diverse collection of movies. So I think it'll be mm -hmm. really interesting to talk about, even though the themes are remarkably consistent um, mm. throughout. I think um, there's a lot of different things that he does to play with those themes in each of these movies. So I think it'll be fun. And uh, and then we'll, we'll have a, a bigger uh, season from one of the kind of towering filmmakers in cinema after that. That's awesome. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really excited to, to, to hear you talking uh, about these works. 
we talked a little bit about Millennium Actress when you were on for our conversation about Japanese cinema. Yeah, I'm very, very excited to hear you do some deep dives into Satoshi Kon's work. I've seen most of his films, but to get some of the, the context and to, to hear you and Travis really dig in, I'm really excited for this. Uh, you know, your podcast has become that essential listen for for so much of uh, these these filmmakers uh, filmographies so uh, i'm really excited for that that's nice of you to say yeah this is a we're we're going to be covering millennium actress next uh, which is one of my favorite uh, animated films and we've had a lot of luck through the seasons and this time is no different with with a filmmaker who about half of his stuff was unavailable stateside when we decided to mm-hmm work on his uh, filmography and now it's all available in the Hmm. u.s uh paranoia agent which is his tv show is going to be released in december in a box set so you can see all of these movies and and the tv show pretty easily now which wasn't the case even six months ago yeah yeah that's great that's really cool well When I reached out to you just a a little bit ago, one of the things that I was really uh, interested in talking with you about, we normally either, we've talked a little bit about some entry points into filmmakers, we've talked about uh, tips and tricks for using the channel, but you and I are both kind of longtime Criterion fans, you know, I think it's fair to say uh, you have been watching your way through the collection by spine and have been documenting your journey through that. And, you know, so we're, we're a fan of, of what Criterion does, but I think we also acknowledge that Criterion hasn't always been as good when it comes to representation. And uh, one of the things that we've appreciated is the way that the channel has pushed forward some of that representation. And then this summer there was the New York times article that caused a, pretty big conversation within our communities and within the film community at large about this issue of representation. And so I just wanted to have a conversation with you about the ways in which the, the channel has become this space for criterion to, to kind of make up for its lack of representation within the physical collection and also um, maybe some of the the places where they're sourcing their materials because they have these great partnerships with some distributors that are doing really good work uh, along those lines as well. Yeah, I mean, it's something that I've been thinking about for over a decade, really, you know, when I was staring down the list of of these movies to watch. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a conscious decision, I think, uh, going into um, Criterion and, and trusting them with your viewing habits um, and and recognizing that that decision uh, to put something out on disc is limited for mm-hmm. them, both by rights and also by their own experiences. And some of that can come in the form of relatively uh, harmless blind spots, something like animation uh, that we were just talking about is a really good example of that. There's only a couple of, of animated movies in the collection but yeah. some of it is more insidious, I think. And I think it's important for Criterion fans to recognize the company can't have its cake and eat it too on this. They can't get away with the perception of them that's out there, not necessarily perpetuated by them, but I think embraced by them that this is a canon of film and that when a movie joins 
quote unquote joins the Criterion Collection, which is something that they say it represents yeah. a seal of quality that they've been too unwilling for too long to not go after movies, both in terms of, of domestic films made by women and by black people and by other people of color. Um, but also China is almost mm -hmm. entirely not represented mainland China. Africa only entered the collection because of the world cinema project. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a number of huge uh, geographical blind spots that they continue to have. And I think when they launched the channel, they were aware of those blind spots. And even in the filmstruck era, made a point of trying to um, rectify that wrong as much as they could with the material that they had available to them because they could do it right away. You know, the, yep. a lot of these rights deals, they hand over a list of movies and these curators decide which of those movies go together and what, you know, what story they can tell about them. And they're able to, to put them up on the channel very often, you know, through rotation. Some movies are up up there three and four times, even since Criterion Channel has has launched. So, you know, you're getting a lot of these movies almost kind of perpetually available on the channel that they have it out on disc or that other people have already put out in di on disc in perfectly wonderful uh, editions. Things like Daughters of the Dust, I think, is is a really good example. All the right carts that are not available through Criterion, a lot of that is through Oscilloscope, you know, so there's a, a lot of these movies are already um, out there and they're, you know, lending their their name to it to a certain degree. And a lot of that is coming from the people who work on the channel. Many of the most forward facing curators and people who are choosing the content for this uh, are, are women. And, you know, I think the more they can kind of involve people who are not, you know, the Peter Becker, Jonathan Terrell era of film geeks or the white men that kind of dominated that field, the more we're going to see additional Claire Denis movies and fewer movies like The In-Laws yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and Princess Bride, which I love Princess Bride, but, um, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know that they necessarily need to dedicate their time to to a film like that. Yeah. You know, and I think of the... Um the Marlon Riggs bundle that came out a few months ago oh. and bringing in curators and film programmers from other institutions, bringing in programmers who can really be conscious about setting up a, a yeah. really well curated bundle or uh, who, who can contextualize the work of a, black queer filmmaker for an audience that that isn't familiar with their work i think that the more that they are involving those those individuals and i think that's one of the th benefits of the channel especially and the more that those individuals are brought on i know that the curator of that bundle is also the one who is also interviewed on a number of discs and uh, is a big proponent of Spike Lee's Bamboozled. And, you know, so they're bringing on these black curators, black critics and uh, intellectuals to begin to help shepherd some of these projects. And so I think that's really going to be important for them moving forward. And the more that they can do that, the, the more rounded the collection will continue to become. Um, so I am I am hopeful that we can get more and more of that as the the physical collection uh, goes on. I, I look at this last month's announcements and it was a much 
yeah. more intriguing slate of releases than we've had in a while as well. Yeah, and I, I think, too, the the channel allows them to have uh, more shorts, you know, which, unfortunately, in a lot of these situations, uh, these filmmakers aren't getting the resources to be able to produce feature-length films. Yeah. Um, so, you know, somebody like Terrence Nance or yeah. um, Kalik Allah, who I think Kalik Allah, with his recent movies, has has got, gained a high enough profile, and I don't think his movies cost very much. So he's been able to to move into feature work, but I think a lot of their produced work to this point is is in shorts. And I think a really great example of that is the current Tell Me bundle that is mm-hmm. on the service, which uh, I've just savored working my way through. I think it's probably the best thing that they've ever curated on the channel. Mm-hmm. That's a, uh, a bundle of movies made by women and basically about uh, women's stories. So women, women tell their own stories mm-hmm. um, in the films. And the title comes from a Chantal Ackerman movie that which is included in the bundle and there's a number of her films in the bundle but there's tons of shorts in the bundle and very many of them are are not the kinds of movies that are going to get sort of standalone solo releases with a high profile or anything like that this is the opportunity that to really put those movies into context with other similar movies and allow people to be exposed to them and you know these aren't the kinds of movies that are going to pop up on Netflix or, or something like that. You know, you might find them on Ovid where the majority of Chantal Ackerman's movies are. And mm-hmm. I highly recommend everybody sign up for that and watch as many of her films as they can because they're wonderful. But I think when Criterion does things like that, I think it shows both that they kind of understand their blind spots, but also that they understand what this format can best be used for, which is an opportunity to present things that they would never be able to present on disc. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think even, even releasing something in a collection, you still don't quite get the same feeling that you can get in this kind of a streaming bundle where you can really work your way through it at your own pace. You really have the interviews and the, uh, the the conversations and the supplemental materials front and center on the the streaming bundle as well to help contextualize everything i mean i think that the way that they have laid these bundles out is just so key and uh is incredibly helpful on the channel yeah and i think you know the the, those movies are coming from all different rights holders you know Mm -hmm. so to cobble together a, a box set out of that, you know, they might be willing to do that for a, a complete Varda or a, mm-hmm. or an Ingmar Bergman cinema, but the budget is is likely not there for something like this. I mean, yeah. I know they put out a Scorsese shorts collection this year, but that's Martin Scorsese. I yeah. think the last shorts collection before that was quite a while ago, if I'm remembering correctly. And and I mean, most of those shorts collections were coming in the 2000s, the era where home video was dominating and anything flew off the shelves. Uh, and they were able to really pour budgets into things. You know, I, I have a hard time believing that they would be able to put out a less blank uh, set today, you know, mm. so I, I think yeah. that aspect of it too needs to be kept in mind that there they have a lot more flexibility with what they're able to put up on the service than what they can release on disc. Well, and and that does make sense too when you think about the the fact that the channel has 
effectively replaced the eclipse line of discs. Mm-hmm. It has replaced a lot of the the more specialized releases that, like you said, you know, if the the channel was in full swing, we might not have gotten a less blank set. We might not have gotten a Hollis Frampton set. We might not have gotten a uh, Brackage set. Those are right. all such unique and highly specialized collections there. Yeah, uh, for sure. And and I think like a lot of these other movies, you know, there are smaller labels than Criterion with a lower profile who are, are able to put out some of these movies, you know, not always on Blu-ray, but a lot of the ones that do get put out on Blu-ray are in stellar transfers. And yeah. I, I think it, it's frustrating to me when there's a lot of crappy film sites out there. We all, we all know their names. <laughs> I don't need to run through them, but I think it's frustrating to me when people put up lists of movies that Criterion should be covering and you can literally go down the list naming the blu-ray discs or the restorations that are currently underway by other labels to take care of these movies and you know there there are so many movies out there just to focus on black filmmakers for a minute something like chameleon street which is a superb film that everybody should be watching is totally unavailable it's only on an out-of-print dvd a great great film you know, instead, we're talking about Daughters of the Dust, which is in yep. the National Registry and has a Blu-ray release from Cohen that you can go on Amazon right now and purchase. And it's frustrating that they're not writing about that disc instead of complaining that this other company isn't putting out the movie. So I definitely think there's got to be a balance between yep. whether you're going to be talking about the the kind of holes in the catalog or even on the channel you know i think there's there's still plenty of of areas that they could be covering on the channel that they're not and specific movies that you know that that are 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 actually getting their due elsewhere and if you're really a, a journalist out there trying to to push these films it would be great to cover those other labels as well i mean i think i wish that that had been the case in the new york times article where they had talked a little bit more about companies like milestone or cohen i mean milestone puts out some really really fascinating black and and african-american filmmaking from the past you know they they're small kind of mom and pop operation and don't have the kinds of budgets that that criterion has unfortunately but they're doing really good work and as much as i enjoy the prospect of of a big microphone like that holding criterion's feet to the fire to put out more of these movies more diverse filmmakers um you know lift up even modern filmmakers in the way that they do with with some of some of the uh white filmmakers that they lift up i i wish they would also spend time pointing out where people can actually see these movies and talking about how good they actually are yeah, you know, when when I did my Charles Burnett run on the Criterion channel with the films that were there and Killer of Sheep is a film that is not available as part of that bundle, I immediately went and ordered the Milestone disc that has Killer of Sheep plus most of the films that are on the channel. You know, Milestone is doing some really good work. They have Losing Ground uh, yeah. and the the Cruise Brothers, which, you know, Losing Ground was just a revelation to me when I saw that. You know, so they have this incredible library of films that they have put a lot of 
work into and a lot of love and care and you know it it does them a disservice to not acknowledge the work that they are doing and while not every one of their releases is a blu-ray and you know the dvds are still good quality dvds and it's still worth putting out the little bit of money uh, to support the work that they're doing and to support that, uh, those efforts in those restorations. Very much agreed. Yeah. You know, we've talked a lot in the past about how, how much we appreciate the fact that the channel is helping Criterion to uh, engage with more diversity. And I do think that that, that is a really I think it's a really key part of of what is going on on the channel. But I do think that, you know, the physical releases still have a long way to go in catching up to that. And it does take time for those things to, to be implemented. But I think that, I think it's really exciting to discover some of these, these other filmmakers that are the bundles that are put up there. I'm so excited to dive into the Terrence Nash films this month. The Sky Hopinka films. I keep hearing really great things about those works. So I'm excited for a lot of that. And, you know, I am really hopeful that uh, this continued pressure and this continued acknowledgement of these these blind spots uh, pushes Criterion to, to continue to look, to, to continue to look and continue to diversify their catalog. Yeah, and I mean, I think, like, the really important thing for everybody even people who kind of don't care about what is inserted into the Criterion Collection or think it should be focused on, you know, Bergman and Kurosawa and, and, and Renoir and call it a day. This is a whole area of movies that really don't generate the kind of exposure that these other areas do. You know, if you mm. look at the sight and sound list or if you look at the IMDb, certainly if you look at the IMDb top yeah. 100 um, or the AFI list, there's not a lot of this represented on those lists. And there's not a lot of opportunity for people to go on to uh, Netflix or Amazon Prime and see a lot of these movies, at least advertised on the front page or something like that. Yeah. So I think over the last few years, as they have really refocused on putting out films made by women, and uh, hopefully they will do the same with black filmmakers that aren't named Spike Lee, I, I think we've gotten pretty uniformly great films. I mean, yeah. I think something like Desert Hearts is a movie mm -hmm. that absolutely deserves to be on the Criterion Collection and absolutely deserves a higher profile, a theatrical tour like it had and a beautiful Blu-ray like it has with great contextual interviews and, and a really just fascinating um, analysis of the movie. This is a this is a good thing for film lovers. Like ultimately, mm -hmm. you're you're being exposed to movies that you might not otherwise have had the opportunity to watch, and that should be the whole point of following a label or a channel like this. Is that rather than just relying on the same people suggesting the same movies over and over again, that you actually get to get steered towards films that that you know you you're gonna love um yeah and that you otherwise wouldn't have seen and in and from a from a company that you trust to to put it forward and at least on the channel at least like pretty good condition and yeah. you know you know if it's a foreign film or if it's in it's not in the english language 
the subtitles are going to be readable. You know, um, <laughs> that's not always the case when you roll the dice on YouTube with some of these movies or even some of the older DVDs that are cropped or, uh, you know, our, our VHS dubs. This is this is a good thing to be able to have more diverse filmmaking in the collection and on the channel. Yeah, and I, I do I do really appreciate your point. You know, one of the things that came up in the wake of that conversation was, you know, I heard people saying, you know, this is why I don't trust a company to determine my viewing. And, and I understand that, and I think that that's totally fair. But I do think that there are a lot of people that don't know where to begin Right. When it comes to their their film viewing and they're still learning. And, you know, as I was beginning to dive into to cinema and as I was starting to to find my way into art, art house cinema, it can be daunting. It can be really daunting. And, you know, one of the things that I really appreciated about Criterion was the care they took with the presentations and that I could trust that. I was going to be able to read the subtitles that I could follow what was happening. Cause I, I still remember picking up a, an old Satyajit Ray DVD and the subtitles were mistimed and it was so hard to follow. And I couldn't engage with the film because of yep. that. And those types of experiences, if you're not willing to stick with your journey into these films can can really kill your exploration into into some of these these films so you know this is why i think uh, labels like criterion like you know so many of these boutique labels why why the work that they do matters whether it's milestone or cohen or you know shout or kino why the work that they do really does matter very much agree well matt Thank you so much for joining me. I really always really appreciate talking with you and I'm glad we got to talk about something with a little more substance. And, uh, this was, uh, this was really good. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Where can people find you online? I'm Matthew EG on Letterboxd. I'm back on Twitter somewhat regrettably. Um, <laughs> Matthew <laughs> underscore E underscore G, but hit me up on Letterboxd. I, I like uh, talking movies on there. Awesome. We'll be right back with more Criterion Channel Surfing as Richard Doyle and I dive into political cinema that is only available in the Criterion Collection's permanent digital library. Stay with us. If you enjoy Criterion Channel Surfing, make sure to check out The Robert Taylor Odyssey, a blog written by Robert Taylor. Robert Taylor takes you along for a journey into his cinematic obsessions, from the Criterion Collection and Film Noir to the films of Akira Kurosawa and the American Film Institute's Top 100. Find out more at therobertaylorodyssey.wordpress.com. Welcome back to Criterion Channel Surfing. I'm here with Richard Doyle, frequent contributor to the Criterion Reflections podcast, and we're getting ready to dive into the back catalog of Criterion's permanent streaming digital library. Because the Criterion Channel releases so much incredible content each month, it's really easy to overlook these corners of their permanent library. So here on the podcast, we try to pay special attention to these titles and give you a few films to check out that you may have missed. 
We've just survived another election season, uh, one of the more contentious ones in recent years. And what better way to step back from the craziness of real world politics than to dive into the world of politics and cinema? If you'd like to follow along at home, Michael Hutchins has compiled a letterbox list of Criterion streaming only titles. You can find a link to that in our show notes. All right. Richard, uh, you know, when I asked you on to talk about politics and cinema, uh, what are some of the things that you thought of and, and what are some of the things that tend to resonate with you when you think about political cinema? Well, I'd say besides the sort of obvious films about politics, like All the President's mm -hmm. Men or Nixon or something, I'd say either films that have sort of some philosophy behind them that's clearly very political, like, say, some of the work of Binwell, people like that. Yeah. Or films that are um, about politics in sort of a more commonsensical way, like, say, the work of mm. Mike Lee, sort of the British, mm. um, sort of the more realistic, socially aware British filmmakers. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a, that's that's really interesting. Uh, you know, I think of um, Ken Loach and, you know, those, the or also the, the kitchen sink social realism of, the, of Britain and uh, just the way that that social realism just feels like the the politics of it is it's there but it's also not necessarily the overriding factor in the characters lives yes. as well yeah for sure yeah well uh, what's the first film that you want to talk about today the first film i want to talk about is in that mode i'll have to admit i'm going slightly on a limb here for a film i haven't seen in probably 30 years but when I saw that it was on, as perusing Michael's list and saw that it was on the collection, I wasn't even aware of it. I decided to go for Scrubbers. <laughs> There's a couple of interesting things about Scrubbers. One, it connects back to something we were, I was talking about earlier in that Alan Clark's sort of big breakthrough is the film Scum, which he made made for British television first, and then the BBC refused to air it, so he remade it for a theatrical feature. And that's a film about a, a boy's borstal, like a, a juvenile prison. It stars Ray Winstone in a very, very young Ray Winstone. And Scrubbers is by this is written by the same person, Roy Minton. And it's essentially a very similar story, but set in a girl's prison. And it's directed by Maya Zetterling, who's a very interesting director. Uh, she was an actress who quit acting in the 60s and had a very interesting and strange directing career in the 60s, sort of very controversial Bergman-inspired, slightly sensual dramas. Hmm. And then um, made this film in the in the early 80s uh, for Handmade Films, George Harrison's company. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to go out on a limb here and say that this is a very good film. I saw it in the 80s because it was amusingly sold on VHS as if it were a very exploitational film. It's set in a girl's prison, <laughs> mm -hmm. and it's not. <laughs> yeah, It's a very sort of social drama about two young girls who escape from a, from a particular borstal, one of whom to try to get into a more strict one to be reunited with her girlfriend, and mm -hmm. another one just to escape. And they both end up being thrown into the more restricting prison and treated poorly. Like what we were talking about, it's a very socially social realism, the abuse of people in prison. It's an ambitious film that probably doesn't completely work, but is very interesting. Mm. Yeah, you know, I I think about a lot of those handmade films, and I find so many of them really really intriguing. There's so much going on in those films, and this is one I haven't seen. And they don't always work, but there's always something. There's always a really interesting core, yeah, and a really interesting idea that they're trying to go for. And they're and I find that 
to me to be really fascinating about these these works that were really daring at the time and uh, you can see them really trying to swing for the fences at times with some of this these films and uh, this one sounds really really compelling I've, I think you know I've seen this in the list of films to you know to look at and it has always struck me as maybe being a little bit more on the exploitation side. And it's really good to hear that it is more on the uh, social realism side. And I think that sounds really compelling. Yeah. I've always thought very interesting, but doesn't quite work. Could have been handmade films mm-hmm. slogan, but <laughs> except for the fact that every once in a while, it really worked extraordinarily well. But <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, this one sounds really, really intriguing. And uh, yeah. And I, and I do think that when I get to, uh, at least one of the films that I'll talk about in our follow-up episode, that'll be similar to, to some of the stuff that I'll talk about with one of those films as well, that there are things that that are interesting and kind of work, but not always. And I find those films sometimes some of the more interesting ones to look at, to talk about. A swing and a miss is always more interesting than something that never swings. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, the, the first film that I'm going to talk about is a film from uh, Nagisa Oshima from 1970, and it is The Man Who Left His Will on film. And, you know, I started diving into the films of Oshima a few years ago, and I remember uh, you know, I had the, the Eclipse box set that had uh, a lot of his early work, and... I hadn't really started looking at those films yet, but uh, remember hearing the episode of the Eclipse Viewer with uh, David Blakesley and Trevor Barrett as they were discussing his films, and it got me really interested in Oshima as a filmmaker. Uh, then you had the releases of Death by Hanging, and there was just this wave of uh, Oshima content that arrived on Filmstruck and on Hulu. So I started digging into his work and he's a a political filmmaker who uh, his politics are always murky and sometimes he's an anti-political filmmaker and uh, and I find that really fascinating as well the man who left his well in will on film is about a a film student who has ostensibly committed suicide by jumping off of a building after being chased by police and he is all he has left is this this final bit of film footage and um, it's been found by a friend and the footage is uh, of rooftops of these different locations and the the friend is trying to figure out what this means what is this is this his final will and testament is this a political statement is this a radical um, discussion of uh, of the politics of the day and and they're all part of a radical political filmmaking collective and the the discussion really centers around what is the role of art in politics and should there be a role for art in politics should politics enter into your art and it becomes this really this really intriguing conversation about identity about the ways in which Oshima was seen was seen the ineffectiveness of the political movements of the day to actually affect change and um it's a a really hypercritical 
film of the political movements of the day, yet it also is this incredibly radical political statement at the same time. So I find Oshima just a, a captivating filmmaker. Uh, I find him to be a, a filmmaker whose work I continue to puzzle over and to be excited to engage with. Uh, no matter how many times I watch his films, uh, I find that there is always something interesting to to see and to delve into. And uh, I've seen many of his films multiple times, and I feel like I continue to get new things out of that the work. And so, yeah, he's a he's a filmmaker that's really intriguing, and this film especially is is a bit of a uh, metaphysical political head trip. That sounds fascinating. I, I've never seen that one. I, I like Oshima a lot ever since running across yeah. Cruel Story of Youth on VHS in the 90s. But, yeah. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. Yeah. It's a bizarre, bizarre little film that I crammed it in originally. Uh, I, I, I talked about it in more depth on uh, David Blakesley's Criterion Reflections podcast maybe last year. And um, I crammed it in at the end of Filmstruck just to make sure I had seen it in case uh, Criterion Channel didn't come back. And I've seen it multiple times since then. And uh, it just is one that continues to grow on me. Yeah. So uh, it's it's one to definitely, uh, if you're interested in his work, to catch. Yeah. What is your second film that you'd like to talk about today, Richard? This The second one I'd like to talk about is a film I saw very recently on DVD. I have a European DVD of Robert Bresson's The Trial of Joan of Arc. It feels to me like not only an extremely interesting film, but a film that sort of ties into mm. a very current political film that's making the rounds. Mm. It's obviously comparable to The Passion of Joan of Arc in that both films focus on Joan of Arc's trial exclusively. But whereas the drier film, as I'd say, very sort of emotional and expressionistic, this is not, which shouldn't be a huge surprise for people who like Bresson, and I love Bresson. But it's a little bit different for Bresson in that it's a very somewhat clinical reproduction of the actual trial from transcripts. Not to say it's a realistic or, bore, or like boringly realistic film. It's not, but it's very much... A reproduction of what a ridiculous show trial that was. And in particularly, it reminds me, if people are looking for resonances with current films, The Trial of Chicago 7, hmm. which was a film I liked quite a lot. And I think both films mm -hmm. focus on the ridiculous injustice of a trial that is where the outcome is predetermined. Right. There's there's yeah. no point in this yeah. trial. Like we have decided up front and no matter what happens here, the game is fixed against you. And I, I it was a film that struck me when I watched it. I was thinking I was ticking off a box on a fairly minor, com like sort of press on complete completionist idea. Like I haven't seen this film and I bought this European DVD to watch this film of his I've never seen. And it really struck me as as a powerful film about about injustice mm. and <laughs> and, and and the things that happen <laughs> yeah yeah brisson is one of those filmmakers that i was introduced to al hassad balthazar in the early 2000s when it was the restoration was making its rounds and um i remember just being overwhelmed by that film that even though it is this film that you know brisson famously is not about he's not sensationalizing anything and, and there's nothing that is, is he's not drawing out, you know, 
huge emotions from his actors, but I just remember being so overpowered by the experience of seeing that film in a little repertory theater. And so he's a filmmaker that I uh, have been slowly working my way through his filmography, uh, trying to savor uh, his work. And this just sounds like a really, really magnificent film. Yeah, I, I really adore him. And too much of his later filmography is kind of hard to find. I've been trying mm-hmm. to piece together, like his films of the 70s essentially are really difficult to, to get a hold of. Mm-hmm. And, and this is one, I, I didn't even actually know this was on the channel until I was looking at Michael's list. And I'm like, wow, like, this is one that really struck me. Yeah. Oh, that sounds great. And and I, I love your your linking it to to current films too. I think that it's always it's always interesting to see the ways in which uh, again, like you like you were saying earlier, the ways that art has resonances and uh, with each other. Yeah. The, the films that we see can speak to each other in some interesting ways. And uh, yeah, this film sounds really really lovely. And uh, I may have to bump this up on my queue uh, a little earlier because that sounds really good. The final film that I'm going to talk about today is uh, from Chantal Ackerman of Jean Dielman fame, and uh, it is Golden 80s, and this is an absolutely delightful film from Ackerman. Uh, you know, I think of Ackerman's work as being a little drier, uh, maybe a little more heady, a little more formal and experimental. And Golden 80s is so joyous and so rapturous. It is a musical. It is an 80s musical set in a shopping mall. And it is the story of a family that runs a a clothing store uh, across the mallway from a hairdresser shop. The son at the clothing store is in love with the young woman who runs the hairdresser shop, but she is in a relationship with a gangster who funds the hairdresser shop. And one of the two of the hairdressers are in love with the son as well. So you've got this kind of love quadrangle going on there at the same time, uh, an American GI returns to France and sees the mother who runs the, who helps run the clothing shop and, He's in love with her from the time that he was a GI during the war, and she was a Polish refugee. So there are all of these kind of cross-currents of love, all set in a place that is meant to um, to echo our, our need for consumerism and for our desire to shop. And as the father who owns the, the business says, we have to keep expanding. That is what it means to be a man. We must expand. We must expand. We must expand as he tries to buy out the gangster and buy the hairdresser shop so he can expand his business. The musical numbers are a delight. They're really funny. It feels in some ways uh, a little like a Jacques Demy musical, but where a Jacques Demy musical is very earnest and uh, the the longing which I love Jacques Demy musicals, the, the, the longing and the, the pain and the pangs of romance are very earnest in a Jacques Demy musical. Here they're played a little more over the top. They're a little more, there's a little more satire in it. The overarching consumerism and, and the capitalism run amok within the shopping mall. They're constantly interrupting people's attempts at connection. 
every time someone is about to connect with another person, another customer interrupts and breaks the ability for these people to connect. The men in this uh, world are full of uh, empty promises. They're full of kind of mirages. It's a charming film and yet at the same time there are all of these themes that Ackerman likes to play with and that she has played with in many of her other films and it, she does it beneath this candy coated surface and in a way that is very playful it's a it's a fun film that made me laugh out loud more times than I expected to for a film from Chantal Ackerman I thoroughly enjoyed this uh, from beginning to end and was not expecting that from from one of my watches this, this month. So uh, this is one that I just would highly recommend for people if they're looking for a little bit of charming musical escapism. I have, I have desperately wanted to see that for many years. I, I'm a very big fan of Ackerman's, but her post-70s work has been very hard to find. I didn't realize mm-hmm. that even was on the channel. I have like a, I think I have a bootleg DVD of this. I've been wanting to watch. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, I'm really excited that this is has become a part of the channel's permanent collection too. That this will probably, I'm I'm hoping that this will get a release at some point. It's really charming and uh, such a fun film. You know, it's quite strangely, I've never seen it, but she made. Uh, a making of feature for this film and released it three years before this film came out. You know, when I was doing my research on that, I noticed that as well. I've never seen that one either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I almost picked La Captive to talk about in this. So I was pointing out that's, that's an Ackerman film. I really love. Yeah. Well, and, and again, I love how, how Ackerman will take films that are not necessarily, you don't necessarily think of them as political films, but she weaves her own, themes and her own ideas in so so beautifully into the work that she's doing and uh it's just inextricable from the story that she's telling yeah for sure well those are four films to catch on the criterion channel that you may have missed scrubbers by mia zetterling the man who left his will on film by nagisa oshima the trial of joan of arc by robert bresson and golden 80s by Chantel ackerman richard as always, thank you so much for joining me today. This was great. This was a lot of fun. This has been great. Yeah, I enjoyed this. Where can people find you online? You can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Letterboxd. That's great. That's awesome. Thank you so much. This has been great. All right. You can find Criterion Channel Surfing at CriterionCast.com and our website, CinemaCocktail.com. And you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by searching for Criterion Channel Surfing. If you'd like to continue the conversation, join us in the Criterion Channel Club Facebook group or send us a message at criterionchannelsurfing at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Josh Hornbeck. Our logo was designed by Doug McCambridge of the Good Times Great Movies podcast. You can see more of his design work at dpmdesigns.com. Criterion Channel Surfing is a proud member of Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at criterioncast.com and support the work of Criterion Cast at patreon.com slash criterioncast. Criterion Channel Surfing is listener supported, so please consider donating to the show at patreon.com slash Josh Hornbeck. 
For just $5 a month, you get early access to all regular and bonus episodes of the show. And for $10 a month, you'll have the chance to give my guest and I a film to discuss in a special Patreon-only bonus episode. I'd like to continue to thank all of our regular Patreon supporters. Your support really does mean so much and helps keep the show going. Thank you so much. On the next episode of Criterion Channel Surfing, Richard and I will return for a follow-up to today's episode in which we'll discuss political films that are available on other streaming services. I hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening. Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com.